Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, we show up in most of our relationships as the same type of person. So if you accept blame with your partner, you probably do it with your friends at work and all these spaces. And it's important for us to notice a pattern when we get into the spirit of always saying, "Okay, it was me just to get out of having uncomfortable conversations or having to deal with something very challenging. We have to look at that behavior because everything is not your fault. Some things are, Mm -hmm. but everything is not, especially in relationships. There are two people. That means that there's two sets of energy present. So what did I contribute? What did you contribute? Um, Perhaps some things are on me. And sometimes this thing isn't on me, but it's important to think about your patterns in relationship. And if your pattern is to always say, okay, it was me. All right. I'm sorry. That's something that you may want to work on to be able to stand up for yourself and be assertive and say, I didn't do that. I did not do that. So let's say you're in that situation and you have the, you know, courage, because I think it is brave, especially if you're in a habit for so much of your life to be mm-hmm. taking that on yourself. Mm-hmm. When you finally say, how do you do that um, where it's not accusatory necessarily to the other person because we all know that when someone comes at you like hey I didn't do this this was you immediately you do put those defenses and those walls up arguing is a choice Mm. arguing is a choice and when someone who I know oh I know it I could feel it right now I'm thinking of situations (laughs) it's like I know this wasn't me I will not argue with you about something being my fault when it wasn't I won't do it Because the argument is really, you have to agree with me. And I disagree. Mm -hmm. I'm stating that now. And I don't care how many times we go back and forth. I'm not changing my mind on that. Mm -hmm. Because there are some things that I'm just not responsible for. And there are some things that I am responsible for. I'm, I'm typically not responsible for any ways that I'm being mistreated by a person. So if you're trying to convince me that I did something for myself to be mistreated, no. We, we can't have a conversation about that because that's not true. You're making a choice to mistreat me. It doesn't matter why, how, what happened. I can't think of a reason you could do it. Mm-hmm. There's no justifiable reason. So you can't convince me that I am causing harm to myself <laughs> in, a, in a way from another person. That doesn't make sense to me. I love that, but so many people fall into that trap. So what is it that there, is it the, um, is it not having confidence in that area to then stand up for yourself? Like that's mm-hmm. so strong girl. And I assume it's not, a, you, 
you maybe I mean maybe this is a misassumption, but that you weren't always very strong and very upfront and very um, articulate and honest about your feelings, or were you? To an extent, I mean, I re- I remember the first time. Well, the first time I ever remember being given the silent treatment um, by someone after not acknowledging that or not apologizing for something I didn't do. <laughs> they tried to say like. You know, you're the reason I acted this way. And the way they acted was terrible. It was very volatile. And it was like, it was your fault. And I'm like, no, no, I refused. And, you know, this person didn't talk to me for a year because I refused to apologize. And I said, I'm not apologizing for something I'm not responsible for. And when they bring it up to this day, I still state the truth. That was your fault. That was not on me. I didn't do anything wrong. And you cannot convince me that I did because you don't want to be accountable for the way you behave. I think you have to deal with yourself. Sometimes we do things that we're not proud of and you have to deal with that. And when you deal with that, that helps you to do better in the future. But if you're ignoring it, that means that you continue to to mistreat people and to behave in ways that are unhealthy in your relationships. Mm. So I'm not helping you by saying, Okay, well, maybe you didn't do it. No, I know what happened. There were witnesses (laughs) and you will not convince me otherwise. And there will not be an apology on my behalf. God damn. So how on earth do we help other people that may not have the confidence to say that? Because that is so powerful. Like I'm I'm feeling like even more like energetic just by you (laughs) saying I'm like, yeah, yeah. I want to be a cheerleader. But like in those moments, right, let's say you're feeling insecure, you've been in a relationship for a while, someone's been gaslighting you, you watch this episode, they hear everything you're saying, but Mm -hmm. it's hard to then make that shift into, Mm -hmm. I'm going to now have the confidence to stand by this. How do you encourage people? What are the things that they can do in order to stand strong in that conviction? Mm -hmm. It takes practice. Mm -hmm. I mean, that happened after many years of experiencing this and I just got tired. I just got tired of it because I I knew it wasn't my fault, but I never had the courage before that moment Mm. to say that this is not my fault. Um, But it took it took years for me to get to that place with that person. And once I did it, it gave me the freedom to continue to do Mm. it Mm. because I don't like people to revise history. What do you mean by that? Make up things that aren't true. You know, this is what happened. It is like, oh, well, let's call these seven other people who were present to really verify that that's not what happened. And it does benefit you to say this is how that occurred, but that's not how it occurred. And I get that. Again, it's very hard to sit in the things that we do when we when we wrong people. I feel really bad about, you know, some of the the things that I've done. But I'm like, you know, I did do those. Mm. I remember um, someone was trying to call me out for saying something mean and they were trying to catch me off. Well, like, well, you said this about them. And I was like, I did. (laughs) I did. And I stand by it. That was the truth. Mm. I wasn't making up anything. Mm. I did. And the person that was there and they're like, thank you for saying. Yeah, I don't want to deny that. I did say that. I did. Because now we're talking about integrity if I will be dishonest about what I actually said. Mm-hmm. And I don't want you to think of me as a liar. And I did say this mean thing, but I don't want to be, you know, mean and a liar. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather just be mean. I don't want to be both. <laughs> 
Because also you can't change the past, right? And so it's like if you did it, you did it. But people are going to look at who you are now and say, okay, if she can own it, then it does show you character, right? Yeah. I'm like, I, you know, I, I haven't always done the best things or said the right things or, you know, none of us have. Mm. And so, yeah, I own that. I, maybe I didn't say that properly or maybe, yeah, I said this thing like, oops, my bad. (laughs) You, you live and you learn. And, I think we have to hold space to not be perfect and to acknowledge when we are harming other people. Mm, so true. Um, I just want to um, take back. You just said something that I really want to like kind of go deep on. So you said, I said, how did you get here? And you said it took a long time for me to do it. And then that was the first time that you really said it out loud. And then that gives you the confidence and encouragement to then stick to it. What um, over obviously years, you know, of practice and practice, what did that really look like? What um, work, internal work, did you really have to do in order for you to get to that point where you could have the courage to speak up and say that? Um, are there any key things in those years of work that you had to do that other people can take and try on themselves? One thing that happened was I got tired of having these conversations in my head about what I should have said. The should have said conversations like I should have said this. And when they said that, I should have said this. And what if I would have said and I'm I'm like, I have to start saying this stuff because my should have said conversations are so good. (laughs) They are amazing. I I just have to start to say these things because without it, I I would be, you know, thinking about this thing, saying it to 50 people. Now, my conversations, when I tell people the story of something, it's like, this is what I said. And then this is what they said. Mm -hmm. It's not, I should have told them this, or I was thinking this. It's Mm -hmm. This is what happened. And people are often shocked. It's like, you said that? I'm like, that's exactly what I said. Because people, I have found that we have a lot of internal dialogue. And it takes years for us to get to the space of being able to externalize a lot of the things that we're thinking. And it does take practice. That helps. Um, But really, the biggest thing is doing it the first time. Mm. The first time you do it, there is a sense of relief that you feel for standing up for yourself. There's a sense of pride. How good does it feel to no longer be the victim? It feels amazing. I am getting better at getting to that point faster. Mm. I want to get there faster. That's my goal. Okay. I want to be there the first time. Yeah, (laughs) That's truly my goal. I want to get there the first time. (laughs) And so how are you doing that? (laughs) Practicing. Yeah practicing when it when it happens just sometimes even if I don't say it right away I've gotten better with saying it soon after Mm -hmm. and so for me that's progress I'm not sitting with it for years I'm not sitting with it for months and days and weeks and I'm just like okay let me go ahead and say let me just call them 10 minutes later and say this thing and what I love about that as well is it's like you, you don't really beat yourself up in the process, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I'm just trying to get better every day. It's not mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm, I have to be perfect or not, right? Because when you slip up once, at least for me, if I'm like, okay, don't do this. And then I slip up, I beat myself up. Mm-hmm. But if I just, if I don't tell myself, don't do it, but I'm just like, okay, take that timeline, right? Like you said, that would be two, three years. And now just do it in 10 minutes. You practice it enough where it then becomes more instinctual and it just becomes naturally part of your vocabulary, the way you show up every day. Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite boundaries is standing up for myself. 
I want to hear more. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's being assertive. Yeah. It is knowing who I am, knowing my worth and valuing that over um, over what people might think and, you know, people pleasing and that sort of thing. Like mm-hmm. if I need rest, I'd hate to overcommit myself. I have a headache at the end of the day. Now I'm, you know, I'm doing all of these things to recover mm-hmm. when I should have said no. Mm-hmm. What's the difference in your mind then between assertive and aggressive? Because I find that it's such a fine line and I worry that I spill over too much into aggressive. And the second you do, I think, it, um, especially if you're in a debate or a discussion, mm-hmm. um, I don't like to go over to aggressive because then I think people then dismiss your point. Mm-hmm. So some very clear signs of aggression is yelling, screaming, name calling, demeaning. Those are all aggressive. Um, typically body, sometimes body language, trying to, mm. you know, stand over someone, intimidate them. Those things can also be aggressive. Mm. Assertive is clearly stating what you want or need, being mindful of your tone mm. and trying to say it in the right setting. Because, hmm. yeah, I try to be like, OK, don't, you know, be firm because mm-hmm. that's part of me. It's like, am I I'm like, do I have the strength to say this out loud? Right. Mm-hmm. Like the courage you build up. It's like, no, you know, you need to be assertive. You need to stand by what you believe in, everything that you're just saying. And then sometimes it comes out. I worry it comes out aggressive. But I'm mm-hmm. like, but I just said, like, no, this is how it is. Like, I try to be very succinct. Mm-hmm. Um, But, yeah, that kind of like slow crossover or even just if the person receiving it may perceive assertiveness for aggressiveness so the perception is something we can't worry about we can Mm -hmm. be very assertive and say hey i'm not able to come to your party no one has been harmed there have not been any explicit exchanges i can't come to your party and someone could say that was very aggressive for you to tell me like that so there are times when we're not being aggressive at all we're just naming what we can can't do what we're willing or mm. unwilling to accept and people will say you are being aggressive um there has been a lot of you know conversation thinks think pieces about women being perceived as aggressive simply for being assertive mm. and that is true and black women being angry mm. by being by being assertive and so i think it's so important to be aware of what the difference is. And I think with black women in particular, um, culturally, there is a way that we speak. You are a Greek woman. There is a way that you speak within your culture. And Mm -hmm. for cultures outside of that, that might seem like they're yelling. And it's like, no, that's just how they talk. Or, you know, if I just say no, it's like, oh, she's aggressive. It's like, no, that's just how we speak. <laughs> yeah, it's so true because my husband, who is, um, you know, I come from a very good, a traditional Greek background. When he first met my family, he was like, everyone is so rude. I'm like, what? Yeah. My family is so loving. loving. I was like, what do you mean rude? Mm. He goes, people keep talking over each other. I'm like, yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> and he's like, what? But his perception of it was that we were just being rude. Mm-hmm. But it's like, oh, if you if you want to get a word in in a Greek family, you've got to have to step on each other's words. Otherwise, you'll never get a word in edgewise. Mm-hmm. But like like you said, the, the difference in culture. So what do you, is it basically then that's just them? That's how they're going to perceive it. You need to be, you don't need to worry about other people. You just have to focus on whether you are being aggressive or assertive. That's some of it. But I think if you're talking about culture, some, some, some people are given a consequence for just mm. saying, well, I'm just being assertive, right. you know, in a corporate environment. It's like, 
hey, you can only be so assertive. You need a job. Mm -hmm. And so if that's just you being assertive, you may have to explain your behavior. You may have to be um, more considerate about how you say things. So there are times where, yeah, you you don't want to overthink the perception, but you know, there are things that will cause you to say, you know, I need to because my livelihood is dependent on how this could be perceived. So it's really important to understand that it's excellent where you could just be authentic and speak your truth. But there are some environments where people are not able to do that. And we have to consider that as well. Yeah, God, that's so true. Um, I want to follow up on something where you just said is basically you can't ex- you can't affect other people and how they behave. You can only affect how you behave and how mm-hmm. you show up in a relationship and how you interact with people. And you actually did a post about um, almost like taking ownership, like this is what you need to do. And all of them, there's seven of them, all of them start with stop doing X, Y, and Z. And I found that fascinating. One, because it means that we do all the things. So mm-hmm. where do we learn the behaviors that we then start and implement in a relationship that we got to the point where we have to stop it, if that made any sense. So I'm just going to read them off to you and I'd love to go through them. Okay. Um, But again, it really hit me that every one of them starts with the word stop. Mm -hmm. So stop avoiding conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that because we instinctually avoid conflict? Absolutely. And conflict is a growth tool, I think. Um, because we have these conversations that are necessary. Hopefully the relationship or the situation continues and we know better. Mm. How will you understand what temperature you and your husband would like your home at if there's no conflict about the thermostat? <laughs> so there are so many conversations we have to have that we just avoid. And so we'll, okay, I'll just leave it at 65. If you don't like 65, just say we need to meet in the middle and maybe do 70 if I like it at 75. Mm. So just having those conversations can be so helpful. So stop avoiding them because they can really put you in a space to feel more comfortable in the relationship. Mm. I love that. Um, Okay. Number two, stop trying to win fights. Mm. Instead of focusing on communication, understanding or resolution, we focus on who's right here. Mm -hmm. And really, we're both wrong. And what we need to do is probably a blend of both. Or maybe someone's idea is better than the other once we talk it through. But you don't need to win a fight. It's not a sport. Mm -hmm. It's not basketball. Nobody's getting a championship ring. But lots of people end up divorced. Lots of people end up um, without friendships, without relationships, because they are focused on winning the fight. And this is not a game. It is real life. And we have to treat that as a sacred practice. And we have to understand and we have to listen and, and resolve when we can. So why do we essentially want to win? Is it to protect our own egos? Yeah, it, it it feels good to be right. You know, I love saying I knew it. You know? <laughs> I love it. Don't you like to be right? Yeah. I knew they weren't going to be open when I came up here. It just feels good. It could be about any old little thing, a big thing, whatever. It's like, you know, playing the lottery with life. I knew it. Yeah. It feels good. Um, okay, you got stop denying other people's feelings. I love that one. Mm-hmm. Again, do we do it because it's it? feels bad if you have to admit that you hurt somebody so it's easier to kind of dismiss it 
we want people to feel how we feel. And when they don't feel like us, we want them to be able to justify how they feel and why, because we don't understand it, because that's now how I would feel in that situation. And we don't all have to experience the same things in the same way or mm-hmm. even different things in a way that you would experience them. And so it's unreasonable to think that we would have the same experience, even people who grew up in the same homes, you know, siblings. My understanding of this may be different than your understanding of this. And it doesn't mean that either of our understandings are wrong. It's just Mm -hmm. how we understood things. And so often we want people to, well, your feelings are not, he was like this, this was, and it's like, can I just have my experience? It doesn't have to be like your experience. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. We experience things differently based on personality or who we are, what's happened in life, and tons of other things. So we don't have to have the same takeaway. I love that. And even kind of going tying that with um, winning or losing, sometimes there is no right or wrong, right? Mm-hmm. It's just the state of being. And when you're trying to either argue your position or like, you shouldn't feel like that. Well, now that doesn't help any situation. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help you guys as a mm-hmm. couple um, and now it's just kind of almost like make, like if someone was to say that to me, I would just start to feel badly about myself mm-hmm. that um, the way that I was seeing it was being judged. Yeah. I think about the, you know, the, the thermostat, I tend to err on the side of please have it hot, toasty, 78, you know, like I love it. Um, but there is no right or wrong for a thermostat. Who is the judge? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's like, there is no rule. There is no law. And we're, we really argue about things that are preferences. Mm. This is my preference for how we communicate. This is my preference for how we handle the bills. This is my preference for how we set the thermostat. There is no rule, but lots of things that we argue about. It is preference. It's not rules. It is place, places in our relationship where we need to communicate more. God, I've never thought about it as being preferences. Because when you put it like that, it's almost like that doesn't seem like an argument that would happen. Like if you sit down and go, what's your preference? What's my preference? <laughs> but like, there's almost like, is there room for an argument? You're like, no, you're wrong. But, but your preference is wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I actually really like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder sometimes I, going back to the preferences, I often think that many of the things that we follow are just preferences. Like when we say, is this right to do? It's like, it's your preference. Mm. So what is your preference here? Because these are not laws. These are things that we are just deciding for ourselves. Now, I can tell you my preference in this situation, but it might not match your preference. And it doesn't mean that your preference is wrong. You cannot change people. Changing yourself is enough, I believe is your quote. So beautiful. So in the attempt that maybe you try to change them, you see that it doesn't work. Okay, now you're trying to change yourself. You start to feel really good about the changes that you're making. You then enter back into your family as this person who's changed. And then they throw comments like, well, you've changed. You're mm-hmm. not the same person you used to be. Mm-hmm. And for someone who may not already be so con- um, strong in their own conviction of who they are, mm-hmm. it's very hard to not revert back to that person that you were in that relationship. And so... There's the, there becomes this like silent push and pull about the word change. And to you, you perceive this as joyful, proud. And to them, it's seen as a detriment. You're the one ruining the family. Um, is, are those the moments where you decide, okay, is this healthy for me to be in? Should I step away? We have to believe in who we're becoming. I once had a family remember, a family member tell me, 
I was funny acting. And I said, you know what? I thought about it. I was a little offended at first. And I thought about it for a while. I said, this person is right because I'm not like them. All they're doing is noticing differences between us. I, I, if I won't, you know, um, bend myself to your needs, that is a little, that is a little change. If I won't allow, you know, any sort of person to, to visit my home, that is a little change. So in some ways, it's a gift that you notice that. So maybe you will start to ask me before you do certain things, or maybe you will stop assuming certain things mm-hmm. because now I am funny acting. So it's it's a gift. Mm-hmm. It's, <laughs> please, please consider me. <laughs> I love that so much. I've actually started using, because you're so freaking great with giving people words and phrases when they come into these situations. And one thing I've been trying recently is when someone's like, oh my God, you changed. I'm like, thanks so much. I've worked really hard at it. <laughs> yeah. And now it's like, what are they going to say? If, if they meant it as an insult, they it's know not. either they either have to stop you and go, well, actually, I didn't mean that. And then that kind of opens the door to you. Go, so what did you mean then? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, because like passive aggressiveness, you see so much, especially in relationships where um, people can't seem to improve that dynamic. And so the passive aggressiveness comes in and now it seems like it just makes things worse mm-hmm. instead of actually making things better. And I definitely see that comment as being somewhat passive aggressive. Absolutely. I think it's intended to make a person feel bad. But again, believing in who you're becoming, it doesn't even matter. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know what? I don't want to be a person who can be easily taken advantage of. So if me saying no to you is like, oh, I can't take advantage of her. I'm okay with that because I don't want to be that anymore. So thank you for noticing. Mm-hmm. I have changed. There is something different about me. My nose are stronger. They are like consistent. Yeah, I, I think sometimes with family, there will be things that are said. There will be things that are you know, maybe pushed back on. Um, and it's not necessarily that they're evil or they're mean, but we all want our needs met. Mm. You know, if I go to a store and they close at six o'clock and I'm there at 559, I'm like, come on, one more minute. You know, like <laughs> I want my need met. I get it. <laughs> so it's it's not like they're doing anything that none of us have done before. They're just doing it against you and they're doing it perhaps in a harmful way. You can have the conversation. You can certainly figure out how you want to perceive in the relationship. But what they're doing is, I would say, you know, it's part of the human experience. Mm. How do you move on from that then? Mm. Um, Because you say in the book, which I'd never thought about it before, you know, the quote of forgive and forget. Mm -hmm. Um, You say that the body never forgets. Mm -hmm. The mind might, but Mm -hmm. the body won't. How do you start to actually let go of that. So it's not even forgetting. I think of it as like letting go deliberately saying this no longer serves me. Mm. Our body physically has a response to things that feel good to us and things that don't, whether that's anxiety where, you know, our stomach starts to churn and it's like, oh my gosh, I got to go to the bathroom. I need to eat something. I don't know what's happening. (laughs) Right. Or it's sweating. It is, you know, our inability to sleep. There are so many people who, before they engage with family, is like, I couldn't sleep. I didn't eat for a few days. And it's like, you're going to visit your mom. What is your nervous system telling you about visiting your mother? And when we really think about that and, and don't ignore it, like, what is your body telling you about this relationship? Sometimes we feel uncomfortable 
in front of people. I've heard people mm-hmm. say, I feel so uncomfortable in front of this person and I don't know why. Sometimes our memories don't start until we're five years old. I don't know what happened before that time. You have enough, you know, sometimes you'll have like one or two and it's like, well, that wasn't okay. But what happened before then? Your body is remembering even if your your brain can't, Mm. even if that memory isn't coming back. I mean, it could be something small when you're a little kid. It could be somebody yelling at you a certain way or pinching you or I don't know. But listen to your body. And how do you identify if you're listening to your body and you it, you start to make the connections, but you you start to remember things where you were told it wasn't a big deal at the time? Mm. How do you start to know, like, actually, that was a big deal? Or, like, how do you start to identify what was a big deal when you've been told your whole life that that one moment or that occasion wasn't? Or that that moment was your fault. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, I grew up in a culture when you were spanked. Mm -hmm. It was because you did something, even if the spanking was severe, even if it was embarrassing, um, it was you did something. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, I don't know if it was appropriate, (laughs) you know, and you could grow up believing like, oh, no, I was I deserve that. But it's like, yeah, I, I remember going to school with a kid who was spanked in front of the class. That was his punishment. His mother would come to the school and whoop him in front of the class. And I'm like, I don't think that's your fault. (laughs) That's like, you know, and it was it didn't curb his behavior. You know, he would continue to have behavior issues. But to some extent, it's like all of us witnessed that the teachers, the the students. And we were like, you better be good (laughs) because, you know, your mom will come up here. But it wasn't okay at that time. We thought it was. It was like he was misbehaving. That is the punishment for that. It's like, that's not okay. And is it just then reassessing? Okay, it may have felt okay at the time, but do I still believe that now? Yeah, it's it's reassessing that at the time, we use the tools we have. Yeah. So if the tool is to accept, you know, how dare you fight back against the people who are raising you? You wouldn't have food. You wouldn't have shelter. So, Mm. you know, a lot of the going along with is also survival. Mm. But now that you're out of the survival of living in these situations, how do you start to reclaim the parts of the truth? How do you start to be honest with yourself about what happened and not normalize toxic behaviors or dysfunction? How do you start to say, you know, my stepmother didn't treat me well. My, you know, my dad, he, you know, whatever those things are, how do you start to acknowledge that this was not okay? It's what happened, but what happened doesn't have to like be reconciled in your mind as like this pretty picture. And it doesn't mean you have to end the relationship. Sometimes we're afraid to talk about adult family relationships and what happened in the past because we feel like if we bring up the past, we have to end the relationship. And it's not about that. Sometimes it's just recognizing this is why I'm standoffish with this person. What's the difference in between standoffish, ignoring someone or just distancing yourself from someone? Mm. I just had this conversation yesterday. You know, distancing I see as a protection. I see it as an intentional protection. So there is this idea that people have to talk to you all the time. It's not true. It's not true. In families, you can call someone and they can't answer their phone. 
I have found that when I set a very clear boundary with someone like, hey, I'm busy at work or something. And they call me four times when I'm at work. I've had people tell that person, tell other people she's ignoring me. Hmm. I clearly said I'm at work. <laughs> like there is no ignoring happening. Now what's happening is some distance <laughs> because I'm at work and I can't respond. Mm. So is it always ignoring or is it my interpretation of being ignored because you won't respond? So I think when a person is clear, it's not ghosting. When a person is clear, it's not ignoring. Now, if you choose to listen to that, that's up to you, but they're not ignoring you. They've been very clear. Sometimes people will say things like, I need a minute. If you're still pressuring them to talk, they are still needing their minute. <laughs> Nothing has changed. <laughs> you just want to talk to them. You want that communication. In families, sometimes there will be a huge event. And afterwards, there will be an estrangement, right? Like this, you think of, you know, sometimes financial issues when a person dies, they don't have a will and then, you know, they have these big old family disputes. Everybody's aware of why they're mad. And some people will say, oh, they ghosted me. Well, they ghosted you because you were supposed to do this thing and you did this other thing. Like it's a ghosting, but it's also a reason behind it. And that has to be recognized that perhaps for that situation, they don't want to talk to you anymore. People don't have to be in relationship with you after you've offended them. In families, I do think there is this culture of no matter what I do to you, you have to continue to talk to me and you need to forget about it. That's just the way we roll. So if I do something to you, and you don't want to talk to me after that, you're ghosting me, but you did something. Mm. If this were any other relationship, I would be allowed to leave. <laughs> but because it's family, I'm expected to stay and take some more. You know, this isn't a boxing match. We don't have to go more rounds. It's like, that was that was enough for me. Dude, that, that hit me so hard. Like the fact that if it was your, yeah, if it was a relationship and they were abusing you, emotionally abusing you or anything, everybody, including your family, what are you doing? You've got to leave. They're toxic. They're so bad for you. But the second you would say, my family's doing this to me, it's like, but it's your family. <laughs> You've only got one. That's so true. It's, it's, it's wild the way that we, um, you know, I, I posted something online about financial abuse within families. Mm. And I was talking about um, in some situations, I have seen adults where their parents have taken when they were kids, they took their financial information and started um, lines of credit or open bills and they never paid them off. And so when these, you know, people became adults and they're ready to go to college or they're ready to get their own place they're walking into life with debt from this parent, which is a crime. It's a crime to use your child's credit for other things. And those people, I don't know anyone who like had any legal ramifications for their family because it was family. Mm. Well, so actually, in fact, this is super interesting because also cultures, like that's being Greek Orthodox, I've just, my entire life, it was always like, Family doesn't argue over money. You just always forgive. And so there would be like, and we've never had to argue over money, but I can just imagine that if we ever came into conflict, it'd be like, but your family. And so it almost dismisses all the misbehavior that anyone does within that dynamic Absolutely. because of the blood related relation. Yeah. And I, and I think sometimes 
it's not healthy for us to give a pass in this. How, how do you really make that distinction? I shouldn't be with a partner who is verbally abusive, but my father is verbally abusive. Most of us will find abuse in another situation because we're condoning it. A part of our brain condones abuse because we're in that situation. So it's not that we're like, you know what? I won't tolerate it in other relationships. To some extent we do. Mm-hmm. We start to normalize the dysfunction in other relationships. Oh, they just did it this one time. Oh, you know, I'm just arguing with them about money. It's like, this isn't okay actually in any situation. Mm-hmm. These are not ways that people should speak to one another. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, It can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with highs as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is a negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about. That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. Amen. So like going back to ghosting, though, were you just saying, you know, usually if you like backtrack, you can kind of see where the ghosting comes from. Maybe you're like ignoring the issue. It's not actually ghosting. They've explained it to you. Um, it's more distancing. But what if it's actually ghosting and they use that as a manipulation tool? Mm. I've had that happen before in a family relationship. I had someone stop talking to me for about a year because they did something really terrible 
And then the next time we talked, they tried to get me to, um, I guess, like, minimize it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, so that wasn't this, that bad. And da-da-da. I was like, no, it's terrible. Mm. <laughs> and I wouldn't agree with them. And they didn't talk to me for a very long time. And then when they talked to me, they, they continued to dismiss it. And I continued to tell the truth, but they didn't ghost me that time. But um, they won't talk about it anymore that ghost thing that happened as a result of, and it was on their end. They stopped talking to me because I refused to cooperate a lie. And it was a tactic to get me to change my position, mm-hmm. to get me to say, okay, you're right. It wasn't that bad. Everything is okay now. And I'm like, I will not talk to you to the end of time, but I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I will not participate in a lie because it's not fair to me. I don't want to be dishonest. So you will want to be in relationship with me. So using a silent treatment or ghosting someone. Yeah, that is a abusive tactic that some people will use to get you to let that boundary go, to get you to uh, get over a situation, to maybe even never bring back up a difficult topic. Oh, I don't want you to talk about this anymore. So your punishment is me not talking to you. And I find it a relief. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, it's like whew, you didn't call me for a year. I was eating pizzas and it was sunny outside every day and it was wonderful. Now you're back. Gosh. All right. What's up? <laughs> but what about the, the times that maybe you don't realize what's happened and someone's just ghosting you and you have no idea what has happened. And then you start to like second guess yourself. You doubt everything you've ever done in mm. their presence. You know, when you're ghosted and you really, truly don't have a reason why, I think the work is really to deal with not having answers for everything. You know, it's it's like the whys of why did this person die and not this person? Mm-hmm. It's what happened here. Everything doesn't have a reason. Everything doesn't have um, some ending that we could connect with. We can't put the pieces together to every story. That is a part of life. Mm-hmm that we may not know some things. And it can be really hard to sit in that like uncertainty of what did I do? Will I do it again? But, you know, sometimes the ghosting is because of that person. Maybe they couldn't talk to you for a certain reason. I've I've been ghosted before um, and I have no clue why (laughs) the person ghosted me. Sometimes I'm like, you know, I remember being ghosted by a friend when I was getting married and I'm like, was she unhappy? be or like I don't even know why like I could make up a ton of things and I don't know and it was really sad that it happened and I just have to live with not knowing did you reach out and ask them I tried to well this is how I knew I was ghosted I was calling the person and they didn't they didn't answer you know I called them a few times we had a regular you know sort of conversational style and they stopped answering and I was like all right I guess that's done So you were okay with just saying, okay, I guess. What else could I do? I don't, I don't know what else I can do. You can't force a person to give you a reason. You can't force a person to talk to you. You can certainly pressure them. You can pressure them. You can send them messages. You can call them 30 days in a row, but I get the point. Mm -hmm. You don't want to talk to me and I know why. Did it create a wound that you had to heal? No, because I don't feel like all relationships go that way. I have some very wonderful friendships. I have some very wonderful relationships with people. So everything doesn't go that way. I think that's a one-off situation. Um, 
I think those sort of things happen in life. Mm. So it's it's not a wound as much as it's like, you know, when I have an inkling about people, I need to listen to that. When people um, say certain things about their other relationships, that I, I need to pay attention to that a little bit better. So it actually, in some ways, mm. helped me pick healthier friends. Is that because you're very self-assured? I'm trying to think of like, you come across as very confident. And so I'm trying to think of women who don't necessarily have that confidence, that in that moment, they make it about them. Oh my God, what did I do wrong? Am I a bad friend? And then it's like, I want to fix it. I want to fix it. And now you actually do more detriment to your own self-esteem and who you are because you're, you're thirsty, if you know Mm, what I mean. mm. I would say that the confidence I have now is practiced. I still, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, look at my hair. Girl, your hair look good. You know, I'm still still practicing. Mm. So there were moments where I was like, what did I do? And I'm like, girl, you didn't do anything. Mm. You know, so it's like, it's that part of me that's like, and then it's like, no, get yourself together, go. You know, so I understand that the lack of confidence is there when these sort of things happen to us for sure. But I can live with not knowing and it's much harder for me to live with blaming myself. So I don't want to be responsible for everything that happens to me. There are some things that happen to me where it's like, my fault. <laughs> but everything, especially things I don't know, I don't want to take ownership of that. I have to attribute that to the other person because I don't have any more information. Why do then we, most people self-blame first? Yes, we do. Aren't we taught that in so many ways? You know, if you you and your sister are in the room playing and your sister starts crying, a parent walks in there. What did you do to your sister? <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> what did you do to your sister? It's all your fault. Yeah. It's all your fault. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have to do a lot of unlearning that everything is our fault. Everything is our responsibility. When people do things, we cause this reaction. Mm-hmm. People are entitled to have a reaction to me. They're entitled to dislike me. Not everybody on the planet likes me. And I'm OK with that. I just need a few. Well, more than a few, but you know, I just need some, I don't need everyone. And so there will be times where you, you go back into that. Oh my gosh, it's my fault. But is it really, or is that your conditioning? Not everything is your fault and some stuff is. How do you, <laughs> I love that you read that line at the end. It's amazing. <laughs> some stuff is. How don't... do you then do it without biasness? You know, I apologize a lot and I take a lot of ownership. I have two kids and, you know, kids are constantly like, you said you were going to. You're right. I did say that, didn't I? I messed up. You know, so there is this I'm in relationships with people who will be honest with me and say, you know, well, when you do this, then blank. I'm like, I didn't mean to say it that way. That was that wasn't right. If I could do it again, I would say it this way. So there is this mixture of. You know, this is not my fault. This is I need to take ownership here to take ownership here. I'm human. I'm a whole person. So Mm -hmm. there are times where I still mess up how to say things. Here I am helping people with all these scripts. And I'm like, ooh, I messed that one up. (laughs) But, you know, I have the ability to go back and say, you know, the other day I said this to you. And after I thought about it, it's probably better to say it this. This is what I meant. And so it has taken lots and lots of practice, practice today. It will take practice tomorrow. Mm. I am not a complete human being in my thinking. I am still growing. And I think sometimes we get really mad on ourselves when we feel like we just need to be here. Mm. And it's like, I'm living right here. 
I'm just, mm. I'm just floating in between like, girl, bad job. Oh, you better, you better. You know, so there is not this space of like, I've mastered it. It's like, I'm practicing. I love that. And I think it's so beautiful, especially with everything we're talking about now, because there's so many nuances to these like individual relationships. And in moments where you try something and you're like, all right, I read Nedra's book. I've watched the interview. I got this. And then you try and you try and maybe you quote unquote fail at something or you try something. You don't get the response that you had hoped for in those moments. A lot of people can make it about them. Oh my God, I'm terrible. I'm useless at setting boundaries. We'll just forget it. Versus going, it's an iteration and you're never going to be perfect. And sometimes you set a boundary and maybe you let someone step a toe over the boundary, you know, but it's all about kind of redefining, redefining and then improvement. I have a really hard time listening to people be hard on themselves. Oh, it's like nails on a chalkboard. When people are like, oh my gosh, I'm so... Oh, my hair, or oh, I'm so stupid. Or I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> what are you saying about yourself? If you think you're stupid, you project a lot of that onto other people and you get upset at them for talking down to you because you think you're stupid. You don't even know you're doing that because you're not even aware of what you're saying out of your mouth. If you're saying that, oh my gosh, what you're thinking. Oh my gosh, your headspace is just like stupid, dumb, can't get anything right because now you're saying it. Mm. I am here to tell you it's not true. You got, you came over here, you have on clothes, you have on shoes. You don't seem too stupid to me. <laughs> you know, when people say I have no boundaries, not true. Did you close your car door? Boundary, you close car doors. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so what Did you stop it? at the light? Ugh, boundary. You know, you're not without boundaries. Mm. Don't say that. Now, there may be some areas you need better boundaries. Who doesn't? Mm. Why do you think we then revert to such a dramatic, big statement about ourselves? It's that conditioning. We're going back to what was told to us. We're going back to being the bad girl, the bad boy. We're going back to... Um, causing everything that we're experiencing. Maya Angelou talks about um, or talked about when she was a kid, she stopped talking for a few years because she was molested by someone who lived down the street. And she said to someone, I hope he dies or I hope something bad happens to him. And guess what happened? He died. And she thought, oh my gosh, I killed him with my words. And so she stopped talking. Oh my God. Yes. She stopped talking. And, you know, she, she later thought that's impossible. I had a thought, but we think everything that we say or think is about us. I can cause this or I can, I can do this. I'm the reason my parents got a divorce. I'm the re you're not that powerful. <laughs> you're not that powerful to cause stuff. You, you think it, we think all sorts of things. Sometimes our thoughts aren't good. It doesn't mean that it's true. Just because I think, oh, I always mess up on so-and-so. There are probably a ton of people who say, no, you don't. That's not true. Mm. But we really get into these thought cycles about who we are and what we can create based on, you know, what we think. And, you know, my friend, oh, our imaginations get so wild. I love a therapy session where... I have a client that's just imagining all of this dialogue with a person. And then when I say this, they're going to say that. And I let it go because I like to listen to it. And I say, you know, you're a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
you are a screenwriter mm-hmm. and I would read your novel. <laughs> if you wrote a book, I'd read it because it's getting good. <laughs> this is the part where you're now saying that none of this has happened. Mm-hmm. Isn't it amazing how for 30 minutes <laughs> you've just talked about all this imagination. Now let's come back to the real world and get to this story. <laughs> and we do that so much. We get so creative with plots and you know new characters. And it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> all they said was, you can't come over. Now you're talking about, <laughs> you've went way over here. You've brought other people into the story. And it's like, you have one thing, focus on the truth. Focus on what you know is real because all this other stuff, it's fictive. It's Mm -hmm. imagination. It's a great story. You know, maybe you can put it in a book, but it's not your real life. Mm. I love that. The screenplay thing is so powerful as well because it really helps us get out of almost out of the own head of the emotion Mm -hmm. of it. And so when someone says something and Often if a friend calls me up and they're like, I, I can't believe it. And, and I was like, what were the actual words that came out of their mouth? Mm-hmm. Though? Because if I say to you, hey, Nedra, your hair looks beautiful today. And, you know, you make, oh, thanks, Lisa. You know, really. And then I say it to someone else and they're like, hang on a minute. You didn't think it looked nice yesterday. Mm-hmm. And so now their retelling of the story is maybe Lisa insulted my hair. Well, that actually wasn't what I did. I yep. complimented their hair. Mm-hmm. So where's that difference between what you're hearing versus what's actually being said. Mm. It is your perception. What's being said is what we perceive is being said often. Um, is not the actual words of a thing. I, um, I wish there were a way to record our conversations and kind of listen to them because so often what we think is being said, well, this person said that and it's like, they didn't say that. You ever, you know, I have been um, just like in the circle of someone regurgitating a story that I witnessed and I'm like, that did not happen Yes, that way. It's the wildest thing that people can come up with what they want to believe about a situation. It's so wild. And I don't even think they're like trying to be toxic or mean or anything like that. It's just like their perception is based off of their history, mm. is based off, based off of their trauma, their childhood, um, how they've you know been in relationships with other people. It's not really based on the interaction that just happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they bring like all their past into this one occasion. Yes. And especially when you're the third party, that is so fascinating when you're like, were you in the same room I was in? Because that <laughs> didn't happen. Um, even from childhood, though, where um, my husband and his sister, so his sister was telling um, a story at Christmas time. And so his mum was there and my husband was there. And to her, it's a traumatising story, like scar. And it, it's on the big scale, it wasn't a big deal. But for her, it really was. So all of respect that. So she's telling this story about how it was really hurtful when she was a kid. Tom was in the room. His mum said it to both of them at the same time, and he doesn't even remember it. But it was traumatic. So those are interesting situations, too, because it was traumatic to that person. A cousin was telling me a story, and this cousin is maybe 15 years older. And she was like, you don't remember this time that we were looking for you and we couldn't find you? I'm like, no. (laughs) No, like... This is your trauma of me. Mm. I don't even, I probably was hiding in my little mind. You know, like I don't have that 
as a life trauma, I have other things, but not that thing. So it's interesting that your memory of that event is like, oh my gosh, you, I'm like, I don't have any memory of that. Yeah. It wasn't the biggest thing in my week. Do you think that in those moments, it's almost then you start to compare your trauma with someone else's and then you start to convince yourself, oh, well, if it wasn't a big deal to her, am I making a big deal out of it? No, I th- I think what's yours is yours. That's why it's really hard mm. with family relationships to tell someone that whatever this is, isn't a big deal. Like, you know, dad yelled at all of us. It wasn't a big deal. Well, the yelling at me in particular <laughs> was mm. a big deal. Now, it may not have been a big deal to you, but it's a really big deal to me. And I don't think we can decide what's impactful to someone. <laughs> <laughs> And we we try to do that sometimes. You know, well, I had this teacher and he wasn't hard. So if you have the teacher, it's like, how dare he be hard for you? It's like, mm. okay, why are we trying to say like intensity for other people? Yeah. I, I I don't think we can we can measure that. And often we try to that this will be like this. I think you you hear it so often with so many things in life. You know, when you go in this place, it will be like this. It's like, well, Lisa's experience will be different. Because it's Elisa, you know, your experience with this person will be different because you are coming with your history and who you are and your personality and all of these things with this person. So you being yelled at or you being, you know, traumatized by a thing is going to be different. I love that you said that. I'm not sure why I thought of this, but I find that women have this problem with uh, motherhood where there are some women that just immediately are drawn to it from the day they were pregnant they're like this is the best thing ever and I've also met women who on the side are like this is really fucking hard Mm -hmm. or it's taken me Mm -hmm. three weeks to feel bonded to my newborn I must be a terrible mother Mm -hmm. because no every mother I speak to has these amazing experiences and I think even to what you're saying about the, the the middle child or depending on where you're born and it's still your experience. And I think that it would be way, like really beneficial for us to now just be honest about our experiences with these types of things. Because sometimes we do compare ourselves to other people who have been there. And if someone hasn't struggled and you're struggling, mm-hmm. you make that about you, that you're incompetent, that you're no good. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about kind of the comparison thing, I feel like that's actually really strong to be able to say, it's my gen, my authentic experience. And that doesn't make me less of a mother or less nurturing, which Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of women feel because they're comparing themselves to other women. Yeah, that comparison and feeling like our story should be the story of everyone else involved. Um, It's really hard for a person outside of a situation to put themselves in the situation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, no matter the age of the person, and I think, you know, kids, unfortunately, there's such power over them because they really can't control anything. So if they're crying or they, that's not a big deal or do it this way or, you know, like all of the stuff we we put on them, you know, all the listening to that I had to do as a child. I'm like, people are often like, what did you want to be when you grow up? Grown. <laughs> I wanted to be grown when I grew up. <laughs> I wanted to be the adult that could choose her own food. That was right. me. I want to choose my, can I go, 
two places in a row this week, you know, because my mom would be like, you went somewhere yesterday. It's like, okay, I want to go somewhere again. You know, like I want to (laughs) choose. So I just want to be grown teacher, doctor, whatever, an adult. Yeah, that's amazing. (laughs) So I love the idea of feeling an adult. And I think that that's one thing that um, in everything that we're talking about is really acknowledging, hey, you're an adult now. So the things that have happened to you, you say this so eloquently in your book is that people still blame their parents. Mm-hmm. As an adult, it's like, well, my dad was like that. Well, my mum is like that. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I love that you're just like, but now you're adult and it's up to you to choose whether you still show up like that or not. Yeah, there's a story in a book where I talk about um, two brothers and their father was an alcoholic. One brother is an alcoholic. The other brother does not drink. And someone asks, you know, why are you an alcoholic? He says, my father was an alcoholic. The other brother who doesn't drink, he says, you know, why aren't you an alcoholic? And he says, my father was an alcoholic. So there is this perception around what happens to us that's really important. And and some some people, you know, maybe through training, through, you know, practice, maybe, you know, some of it is innate. They say, this is my circumstance and I can choose to do something different. And then there are other people who's like, this is my circumstance and it needed to be better for me to be this other thing. Mm. I always think about that with like abusers. The same thing. It's like some people grow up to then abuse their children and other people grow up to say, I'm never going to even spank my child or even slap them on the hand because I was physically abused, you know, as a child. And so it's interesting, those dynamics of how one person chooses one path versus the other. And now that we're talking about being an adult and being able to make these decisions, what about those situations where you almost cannot leave? And the example that you give in your book is like in-laws. You, you can't just ditch your in-laws. So how do you navigate a relationship with your in-laws? The biggest thing with in-laws is to remember that you are joining a family culture. You don't have to love and like these people. You need to be cordial and get along. A lot of our stuff, unfortunately, is put on the in-laws. My mother-in-law should be nice. Maybe not. Maybe she just cooks well. (laughs) She might not be nice. You know, we have these ideas about how other people should show up. You know, their family is loud. Okay. You know, you invite them over and when they leave, you're like, whoo, house quiet again. It's not that simple, but I think we do have to get into the practice of understanding that Our job in this relationship is not to control it, is not to change a culture. It is to be in community with people and you don't have to be best friends with your in-laws. It can just be, this is, you know, my partner's parents. These are, you know, the grandparents (laughs) or the aunts of my children. It doesn't have to be, you know, I am just so in love with my mother-in-law. But I find that that's our expectation, that it's just like happy. This person is, you know, a certain way. And we can't control that about people. What we can control is how we decide to show up in those relationships, how we decide to communicate with them. We can't make them anything other than what they are. And that goes for our family, too, that we can't change people and we certainly can't change our in-laws. But what would you do if they're toxic people? Because at least with it's your family. I at least don't think of my, I have an obligation to my husband to keep talking to my mother, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's two separate. She's my mom. Mm -hmm. If she's toxic, then I'm going to make that decision. Um, But when it's your partner's parent Mm -hmm. and they're toxic, how do you protect your own 
um, your own space and your own, you know, harmony. Mm. Talk to your partner about it. You know, I think it's always best if your partner can deal with their family. It does become problematic when you and your partner don't see things the same way. And they're mm. like, my family is great. Like, there's nothing wrong with my family. In that case, you can still put up your boundaries. You know, I've certainly heard of, you know, people saying, when my mother-in-law comes to visit, she can't stay with us. That's not, you know, the partner's <laughs> boundary. It's mm. like, she can't be in my home. <laughs> That's my boundary. So I, I think you have to think of, you know, ways in which you can still have some sort of um, connection with your partner, even if they disagree, because they're from that culture. So you're trying to get them to recognize a lot of stuff like, oh, don't you see how your mom is codependent? It's like they might like that. And here's the thing. Some of these things that we see as problematic, like enmeshment, codependent, addiction, other people may not see it that way. And it might not be problematic for them. The enmeshment that you have a huge issue with might be the greatest joy in this family. Everyone is alike here. <laughs> you know, it's like we love it. And here you are like, uh, you all can't do anything without each other. And it's like, yeah, that's the way we like it. So what if that impacts your relationship then? Because let's say your partner is enmeshed in their family and you're finding that that actually is coming in between you and them. We have to do things separately. There mm. are some things, there, there may be some compromise of, okay, we can include your family here, but not here because we have a relationship as well. We have a commitment to each other and our family. We have created a family in this relationship. And as a part of this relationship, there are some things that we will have to do separate from other people. And you think that if, um, if you having have that discussion before you start to interact all the time with their family so that there's just mm -hmm. understanding between you? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think a, a really good way to think about this is in the dating phase, really. If you're in a relationship with someone who just refuses, if they have a horrible family and they refuse to take any ownership and, you know, their role to, to have some boundaries and that sort of thing, that's, you know, that's something to consider and talk through at that point mm. and maybe not continue in the relationship until it becomes this really big thing. Uh, some of those things are not new. They're just like things we've been dealing with. And, you know, you don't want to like dump a person because of their family, but it's certainly maybe a time to go to therapy. Mm. It could be a time to start reading more books about in-law type relationships and having, you know, some structure in those relationships. It's not once you get married. It's not once you have, you know, kids. It's before then that you should start having these conversations about how you handle your family and how I handle mine, how we sort of think about the way we were impacted by our families. Mm, yeah, when me and my husband got married, so we've been married for 20 years, when we first got married, I thought it was his responsibility to set the boundaries in our relationship with his parents and then realised, well, that was just a lot of pressure on him and it was me and him having almost the debate and the back and forth and it really was, hang on a minute, he's almost the third party and so I decided I was going to build my own relationship with my own mother-in-law and go straight to her and anytime I had a problem or an issue, I would approach it with her directly mm -hmm. instead Instead of having my husband in the middle and that that became beautiful for my hu my husband and I's relationship because I used to be like what are you gonna tell your mom right like it's like you know you're looking at your partner to tell their parents I love that 
I love that. And, and I think that's a wonderful way to do it. And it sounds like that worked for you and your relationship. And there are some other people who may say, you know, I don't mind talking to my parents about the issue. I think when your partner talks to their parents about the issue, it needs to be an issue for them as well. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you'll have a partner who goes back and says, well, Lisa said <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> and, and that's not very helpful. It needs to be, this is the rule in our home, or this is what we need from you. It's not one person. It is, we are a united team. And as a team, this is what we think. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, when you're dealing with with your partner, your partner may not be assertive. Your partner may not like confrontation. Your partner may have their own things they're working through with their family and they're not Mm -hmm. going to be direct. So you're right. It's important that I don't want to have to say this, but I will say it as a way to preserve our relationship. I will tell my you know, mother-in-law when I'm cooking, please don't come in the kitchen and tell me how to cook dinner. You know, like those are things that you can do. I think of it as, you know, in the workplace, the protocol for an issue is typically speak to the person directly. It's not go directly to your boss. It's like speak to the person and just say, hey, I don't like that. Or, you know, here's another way to do it. And then escalate the issue. But how do you in your relationship with in-laws figure out if this is a situation that needs to be escalated? Is this a situation you deal with um, on your own or if this is a situation you need to accept? This is something that I personally struggle with, which I notice a lot of people do, where they're not necessarily being clear about what that boundary is or about how someone else's boundary is affecting them. And this goes to the second part of communication. And so I pulled a couple of things that you put, sometimes the problem is, and I loved this post so much, and I'd love to go through a few of them, where you put, sometimes the problem is you allow them to vent without telling them you aren't prepared to listen. I was like, oh my God, that's so strong. So That goes back to that's actually you problem, right? It's you haven't told them that you're not prepared to listen. How on earth do you do that? Um, I can't talk right now. I'm on my way to work. I'm about to start my day. This is not a good time for me. Um, Is this something we can talk about later? Wow, I thought I was just answering the phone and it was going to be very light. But this sounds like something that has a lot of detail. And I actually was about to hop on a call. Um, I think there are many ways to say, I can't talk about this thing. It sounds really big. And this is not the best time for me to get into it. Because there are some people who will call and they're just like, this is the problem. And they just go. <laughs> and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm in line getting a sub. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not prepared for this. <laughs> and it has to be okay for us to have some limits around when we're able to talk about certain topics. And I think people can understand that. We assume they can't, that whatever they want to talk about, we're their only person in the whole wide world. And if we don't talk about it while we're standing in line, they won't have anyone. And that's typically not true. Because if I have a real problem, I have a few people, you know, maybe not a ton, but I have, I'm like, okay, she didn't answer. All right. She didn't answer. Okay. Got one. You know, like, <laughs> I found somebody. <laughs> got one now. Girl, you got me. All right, here. Uh, and, and I think it's important to, to ask people if they have the capacity because sometimes people don't. I want to know if you're, you know, 
in a store and you can't talk about something with me. So let me know. And lots of times when I ask that question, I've had people say, well, let me give you a call back in 10 minutes when I get back to my car. Or let me give you a call back um, this evening when I'm not, you know, doing stuff with the kids. So they let me know when their energy will be available for me to really get into this issue. Because if it was a crisis, I think I would have called the police. So this is not, it's a life crisis, but it's not a crisis, right? And so this is something I probably could either find someone else, maybe go journal about, schedule a a therapy session and wait for that person to give me a call back so I can process that with them. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, I love that. But I also heard you in an interview, which is exactly how I felt. So this is why I wanted to bring out because you said a lot of people interpret setting boundaries as being mean. And so when I read that post was like, you allow others to vent without you saying, hey, right now, I'm not prepared to listen. My fear is that people are like, yeah, but I need you now. Are you just are you not going to be here for me? Um, and so the fear of not being alike to the fear of not feeling like I'm in fact, it's not even that the fear of not feeling like I'm there for my friend. Mm-hmm. It's also so um, just overwhelming that even if I can't handle the emotion that's coming at me in that moment, I do just suck it up. And I don't know if that's actually a good thing to do. Um, how do we overcome that thought of being a people pleaser, always trying to be perfect, always trying to be there for your friends or your partner or your parents when it ends up possibly being detrimental to you? Um, mm-hmm. Because I'm really torn with that. Because I love my family and my friends and my partner more than, you know, life itself. So I get torn between those things. Yeah. You know, I, at the end of the day, we will always have ourselves. And then on top of that is everyone else. So the person that I have to please the most is me. It doesn't mean that what I need or what I want is more important than anyone else. But I certainly believe in self-care first. Because I cannot care for anyone or anything before I care for myself. And so with that in mind, um, as I am taking on 
you know, more things. I have to think about, is this something that I really have the capacity to do? As I am listening more to people, I have to think, is my energy in a space to take this in? As, as I am offering more support, I have to think, can I really do this? Because we're not doing um, anyone a favor when we are depleted and still helping them. So often if I say no, it's in light of everything else that I have going on, things that I need to do for uh, my family that lives in my house, myself, and then I'm honoring outside requests. And people don't know what my calendar looks like, what my energy looks like, how how much sleep I've had, how much water. They they don't know these things. So as they're coming to me um, for help and, and, and with requests, Uh, they don't have a background story. And so we don't have to take it personal, right? And say like, oh my gosh, this person should know that I can't. Well, they don't know because they don't know everything that's going on with you. And it's really our job to let them know that um, I really can't handle this thing right now in light of the other things that I have going on. Uh, And there's no apology needed for that because we don't have to apologize for for having other things going on. There may be times when you're available to them and there may be times when you are not. This is, you know, this might be a not time. How do you avoid then apologizing? Because you're 100% right. It's like we do that a lot, right? We apologize for things because we want to be liked. Going back to people pleasing. How do you avoid that? Bite your tongue. <laughs> bite your tongue. Bite your tongue until you get good at it. when you find yourself like, uh, 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 just cough. Don't finish it. Don't finish the sentence because there is nothing to apologize for. There's nothing to apologize for. People tell us, you know, I'm so shocked sometimes at how hard it is for us to set boundaries. And then I think about all of the boundaries that people set with me. Everybody has these boundaries, you know, and we're constantly respecting other people's boundaries. Our parents, you know, who were super afraid to set boundaries with, they've had so many boundaries. You know, I'm, I'm happy that it's my turn. I'm like, remember that curfew? Ha ha, I got a boundary for you, mom. You know, it's like we, we've had so many boundaries put on us by other people it is okay for us to have a few girl that hit me so hard like that's so true i mean it's it's so simple but it really did like the fact that we all live in boundaries but then yet we're talking about how do we set boundaries it's almost like the boundaries we are used to um one of my favorite quotes is the david foster wallace quote where it's, I don't know if you've heard it, but there's big fish swimming along and there's two little fish swimming by. And the big fish says to the little fish, what's up, boys? How's the water? Little fish keeps swimming. One of the fish turns around and is like, what the hell is water? David Foster Wallace. The point being, when you're surrounded by something every day, you don't even question it to the point where you don't even realize it's true. And I liken that to the belief system, right? The belief system that we have growing up, we don't realize is handed to us, is told to us by our teachers, our parents, the environment, the world, you know, the street we grew up in, all these things. And so it just, it, it never dawned on me that that's boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're so strong. Yeah, they're all around us. And here we are. We don't want to set our own personal yes. boundaries. And everyone we know has these personal boundaries. I mean, I, I grew up 
Um, and I had a grandmother and there was, you know, certain furniture in her house she couldn't touch. You, this is a couch you do not sit on. Uh, this is, you know, this is a table you do not touch. These play settings are not here for you to play, little girl. You know, it's like, this is just for decoration. Don't you touch that. You go in the kitchen at the table, that's where you eat. You know, so it was, it was all of these things. And I was just like, okay, yes, grandma. You know, I wasn't like, oh, she has rules for me. <laughs> it was like, no, she has rules for me. And what I love is I actually heard you even say it in an interview, like, and I never even asked my grandmother why she had the plastic on her sofa. It was just like, you don't ask. That's the boundary. and You just respect it. Yeah, you just go with it. It's like, okay, I don't know. I mean, once I became an adult and I have kids, I'm like, I see what <laughs> I see everywhere. <laughs> plastic everywhere. And now I'm like, don't sit there. Don't sit there. This is where you eat. This is where I got all kind of boundaries now. But um, and, my, and my kids have boundaries, too. You know, they, they want to dress a certain way. They want to listen to, you know, certain songs that are, you know, not my taste. But, hey, if you want to listen to that, you know, it's it's appropriate. I don't like it, but go ahead. You know, so we we all have these things about us. And I think the more they're respected, the more we feel connected. Mm -hmm. I never questioned my grandmother's boundaries because I knew she loved me. And if she had a room, who cared? You know, like, I, I don't even care because this woman is about to feed me some good food and kiss on me. And, you know, so I don't care about play. I won't sit there. You know, I didn't, even, I didn't even think to question it because I knew she loved me and we were so deeply connected that I didn't even think about these things. You know, it's like, I want to be a relationship with you. And if being in this relationship with you means that I have to take my shoes off or I need to call you before nine o'clock or you know, uh, you want a heads up if I want to talk about something deep. Okay. Because I love you so much. It doesn't even matter to me. God, I love that so much. You just really hit the nail on the head of what this whole thing is about is that literally by setting boundaries is actually creating a better relationship, a more connected relationship with that person. And so if we can shift our perspective instead of being like, I'm fearful of setting a boundary, am I going to cause conflict? I don't necessarily have the confidence. If we can just repeat to ourselves, it's actually going to bring us close. It's actually going to make us tighter. Like, I actually think that that's a great strategy of removing the fear that people may have of setting the boundary in the first place. But the one thing that I do wonder, though, is sometimes when you set boundaries and you have people around you that respect them, right? You've communicated the boundary. Um, you think that you're they're on board, everyone understands. And over time, it starts to wean a bit. And it's almost like your boundary has an expiration date. Um, how do you deal with those things? Because those actually, to me, feel exhausting. It's because you feel like, am I just like beating a dead horse? Does, is this a show of disrespect because I've told them in the past? Um, no. How do you, how would you advise to deal with boundaries that may feel like um, they they have an expiration date? So one thing you could do is certainly restate the boundary. And when you get to the point of, wow, um, I've said this like seven times, um, maybe you want to say something a little more definite. And, you know, sometimes people keep asking because they really want to, to um, 
break through the boundary and get you to eventually say yes or even forget about it. So it's like, okay, it's been two months. I've been doing this thing. Now I'll quit, right? Uh, But that's not really anything personal to you. That's just how we do things. We exercise for 10 days straight, then we quit, right? It's, It's not anything personal to Lisa. It's just something that people do um, because really sticking to it takes discipline and it's not their thing. It's your thing. They're not doing their thing. And so it's it's hard being disciplined with our own stuff, right? With the things that we actually want to do. I want to wake up at 5 a.m. I want to read two books a week. I want all of this stuff. That is hard to be disciplined. Add on to it somebody else's stuff. Like now they want you to do X. It's like, I forgot, like, I don't, I did it five times. I forgot this one time. Um, As we're introducing our boundaries to people, cut them some slack for being beginners at understanding this, unless you think that they are maliciously trying not to listen to your boundary. But sometimes people truly, they forget, um, is not at the top of mind because it's not their thing. We all struggle with discipline. Like there are lots of reasons that people aren't going to consistently be on top of your boundary. And it takes some level of training people to get them to really consistently get it. Gosh, I love that so much because I it was the initial feeling is always it's personal, right? It's against me. It's they don't respect me. Um, so talk to me then about um, codependency on setting boundaries and how that really does affect a relationship or really how like boundaries are the healthy thing to avoid codependency. Yeah. So in codependent relationships, there typically aren't any boundaries um, because the relationship is dependent on the enmeshment, the rescuing, the saving Um, the minimizing of really big problems. And so when you're engaged in those behaviors, there's typically not a lot of room for structure and limitations and expectations. And so having boundaries certainly breaks up the ability for a person to be codependent. And particularly when we have a family history of trauma and dysfunction, codependency, it's really hard to begin to set those boundaries because it's a new concept. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. You're the only person who's saying we have to do X <laughs> because the the, the family uh, dynamic has operated on not having any boundaries, not having any rules or expectations, holding people accountable. And so in those instances, I have found it the hardest with people who have those dysfunctional backgrounds um, with family because it's not a supported concept. And so often, like we started uh, with you saying that people are gaslighting you and making you feel like, why are you saying this to me? That is often the case because no one supports um, this concept of boundaries. But here's the thing. If it feels good, if it is a healthy concept, um, I don't know if it has to be supported with people that you're trying to um, implement it with. Because there are times where people just, they won't support something healthy. And that doesn't mean that you're doing a bad thing. You know, if you're saying, hey, wash your hands when you come over my house. It doesn't mean that hand washing is bad if these people don't support it. 
It just means they won't support it. Continue your rule of hand washing. <laughs> so you don't have to take away these things because people are pushing back against them. You just have to build your strength and courage and consistently say, this is the thing I need you to do. And they may push back and over time, they may, you know, well, let me wash my hands. I am loyal to love. I'm not loyal to abuse. I'm not loyal to um, abandonment. I'm not loyal to um, persecution. And I think we we mix up what's what love is because people will abuse you and say, I love you. Now go to bed after <laughs> after they've done a, a ton of things, you know, or not taking good care of you or, you know, maybe hurt you in some way. They will still say, I love you. And so that's that's very confusing to have love infused with abuse and neglect, even from a sibling, a sibling bullying you to have I love you infused with bullying. Mm. And sometimes we we get it twisted in our mind, like, well, maybe they do. They're still here. And it's it, maybe their idea of love is also twisted. But can we have love where there is pain? I'm not talking about humans being humans, where they make a mistake every once in a while to get it wrong. I'm talking about sometimes intentional pain. Is that loving? And so loyalty is is important. Sometimes but we have to question what we're being loyal to. Are we being loyal to lies? Are we being loyal to keeping secrets that are actually hurtful for us? Are we being loyal to, you know, abusive situations? Sometimes we are with mothers or, or fathers who have tendencies of being overbearing of, you know, maybe sometimes being mean. I do wonder you know, within us, what do we do to change those situations? I was talking to a woman who said her um, her mother calls her every day. And if she doesn't call her mother back, she's like, why didn't you call me? You were leaving work. Why didn't you answer the phone? And she's like, I feel a lot of pressure. Like, you know, if if we don't want to talk to someone as an adult, you have the opportunity to perhaps not talk to that person mm -hmm. as much as they would like. And it's it's really hard when someone is demanding it. You know, you call me when you get here. Call me when you get back. Answer the phone when I call. And I said, you know, it sounds like you and your your mom have different boundaries. Her expectation is that she talks to you all the time. Your expectation is that she doesn't. I'm talking to you. So who am I talking to about enforcing expectations? You. I can't go to her. She's not here. <laughs> I can't go to her and say, girl, stop calling her. You know, but I can look at you and say, why do you answer? Have you ever said anything to her about that? What have you tried to do? Because it's one thing to say, oh, this person, I can't believe they're doing all this stuff to me. And it's another thing to go along with all the stuff they're doing. I just need to let that last line sink in. That was so good. So how do you then uh, actually like separate those two? Because again, like there's so much belief that has been embedded in us as growing up that how do we know what we're just going along with versus what um, we should be going along with? What feels good and what doesn't? You know, going back to those feelings and saying, because there are some, you know, parents, you love to talk to them multiple times a day. Don't change that. Mm. It's in situations where people don't that it's problematic. So how do you say this? This doesn't work for me as you would in any other relationship. How do you say, you know, uh, for the holidays, 
I don't want to come to your house or, you know, I'll be spending the holidays, you know, with my friends or whatever those things are. How do you start to say that? Because people can demand or they can request whatever they want to. They have your phone number. They can call you. They can text you. They can do all of these things. How do you respond to that? I think of social media and people will say like, how do you, you know, make people be nice to you? I don't. I get crazy DMs. Mm -hmm. How do I not respond to them is the bigger question because I don't, I don't respond and I block them because this is not a type of behavior that I tolerate. And you've decided that beforehand, so it's easier for you to show up and draw that boundary. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Okay, as you were talking, I'm always trying to think about what is the reality of humans? And so there's these people that are listening to everything you're saying that is so beautiful and it's so concrete. But what is the thing that gets in our way? Why do we still have problems with our family dynamics, with um, how we've been treated as children and how we uh, bring that into our adult adulthood? And I was just thinking about those moments where maybe we're trying to set boundaries with our parents or trying to set boundaries with our families because we really want to build confidence. We want to build um you know, uh, resilience in ourselves. And so we're, we're practicing these things. Okay, so step number one, I need to start setting boundaries with my family. The thing that I think holds a lot of people up, especially when it comes to families, uh, parents, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but in you saying, I'm not going to go to a Christmas dinner, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say that's a beautiful way to go. I've assessed my mental health, what I need and what is going to be detrimental to my mental health. And maybe you've decided, you know what, if I go to this dinner, then it's not going to be good for my mental health. But then the realities of life and humanity come flooding in where maybe it's like, but what if they die and you never get another Christmas with them? So I'm going dramatic, but this is actually how yes, I think. And yes. I think that this is very true to so many people where it's like, but what if I disappoint my dad and I don't, you know, and I marry this person and he passes away and my marriage doesn't work. And I, now I've disappointed my dad and he was mm -hmm. right in a way, right? Like we, we do project fears into our decisions that we make. And I think that that those fears often dictate, um, maybe the poor boundaries that we believe that we either shouldn't have or the, the direction that we go in, in our life doesn't actually serve us. That is a huge reason we stay in relationships because of that. What if, what if they get sick? What if I'm not around when this happens? There is this fear that something tragic will happen and we'll miss it because of these boundaries we place, because of these things we put, um, in action in the relationship. And, you know, I think when you get to a point of, maybe severing ties with someone or placing a boundary or creating some distance or even just making some changes in a relationship. You do it when you're ready for it. And if those are your thoughts, if you're still thinking about what if, what if, that could be a sign you're not ready. Mm. And that's okay. You know, there's no pressure to, to change at any point. You know, as a therapist, I've seen people struggle, you know, in some family relationships forever. <laughs> because they don't want to leave them. And that's so much of what this book is about. It's really about how do you change your role in the relationship when you're not ready to leave? Mm. Because every relationship isn't to be discarded. You know, if I have issues in my relationship with my mother, I call and I talk to her about those issues. I don't, I, I have not thought, you know what? I need to stop talking to her. Mm. It's like, hey, okay, new boundary girl. 
Like, <laughs> here's the thing. So when you came to visit, you know, like this is the thing. It's not always, you know what? We need to end this relationship. She may get upset sometimes, but I get upset when she does certain things. Mm. Isn't that a part of a relationship? You know, I I try to make relationships um, seem like a space where people will annoy you. They won't always get things right. And it doesn't mean that you don't love them. It just means you're in a relationship. You will argue with people. You will have disagreements. That's a part of being in a relationship. If you're expecting perfection always in a family relationship, in a romantic relationship, it's not going to be a very healthy relationship. You will have to say something to people because you're growing and changing and so are they. And I, I think one of the things that happens when you become an adult is there is still that age difference there in our relationship with some family members, but hopefully there starts to be the respect of adulthood, mm. that you have the opportunity to create the life you wanted, just like your parents did, just like your siblings are doing, just like everybody else is doing. You get to do that too. Mm. How do you then help if that dynamic hasn't changed, right? Because it's thinking about identity and everything that you just said, often when you're a child, especially being the youngest, so I'm the youngest child, I've my entire life thought of myself as the youngest child. And so I, I, I'm talked to by my parents as the youngest child and then my siblings will tr- talk to me like the youngest child. And then recently they hit me up over text and we were having this big family text and it was this big decision that we were making over um, it's a family issue. And... I've been the youngest child, kind of just stepped back. And everyone's like, Lisa, you need to speak up. And I was mm. like, oh my God, I did. It hadn't even dawned on me that the dynamics had changed and that the identity was that, or the, the thing that they had seen me as now is the person that helps make decisions. But I had so had the identity of being the youngest child that I put myself in that position. How often do you see that dynamic happen? And then how do you help people um, either pivot their identity to be mm-hmm. the adult instead of staying as that child? Um, and then how to help the family see that you've changed? Mm. Some of the things that we learned in childhood, it still works for us, right? Like I'm the youngest child, right? And I remember... Um, my sibling and I have a huge age gap. So I remember like with my, my sibling and my older cousins being like, don't tell me what to do. So I always wanted like this autonomy mm-hmm. and I'm still very much like that. And, you know, I, it's not necessarily problematic. And I find that I gravitate towards other people who have that same sort of younger sibling energy. Like it's, it's just something that, you know, I'm, I'm used to, and I I like that sort of personality, but I will also say with that, you have to figure out when you are being the youngest or the oldest in a situation that doesn't require it. You know, if you're the oldest child and you're used to like, you know, telling all these little people what to do, you may not need to do that at work. (laughs) Your friends might not like that very much. If you're the youngest and you're like, I don't care what everybody else says, it's like, no, speak up. You know, so there are times where that doesn't work for us anymore. And we have to recognize it, especially when you get into a relationship and it's like, this person expects me to do everything for them because they're the youngest Mm -hmm. and they're used to being catered to. It's like, this isn't, you got to change your role now. So we have to think about like what happened to us and how it impacts 
our relationships? How are we showing up? Not all things are going to be problematic, but some things are. I'm, I'm with you. Like sometimes I, you know, especially in a group dynamic, I'm very quiet. I'm like, everybody else make a decision and I'll go with mm. it or I'll say no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, mm, doesn't work for me, but I won't get in on the decision making because it's like, ah, you pull together. Mm. And I, I know that like with you, sometimes that could be problematic because I'm not making a decision, but I'm like, I really kind of don't care. I'm going to do it or not. Mm. So how do you then identify when it's useful and when it's not useful? What is the pushback? What are other people saying about it? You have to be open to that feedback from mm. other people. Like your siblings said, we need you to make a decision. And so you have to step out of that and say, this is not being useful. Now, other situations, it might be okay. But in this situation, it's not useful for me to not have a perspective. Mm, yeah, I love that. Um, you said earlier about, is it time to cut ties? So mm. with everything we're talking about, how do you advise someone with those steps? So they've identified that they've got a problem. They under, um, they've got a problem as an adult. They've identified that it's from some form of dysfunction as a child. You've laid out beautifully like all the different variations. You go really deep in your book. And now once you've identified it, what are the steps you advise someone to take? Because I assume you don't jump straight to, well, come out your life, done. Um, but at some point, that decision is a very um, wise option. Mm. And A, I want people to know what you write in your book beautifully. It is an option. And I don't think a lot of us see walking away from our family as an option. But if that's not the go-to immediately, what are the steps? And then how would you advise someone to um, make that decision for this, the sake of their mental health? Well, walking away is an option when there is abuse in the situation currently. You know, there are adults who are still being abused by the parent who abused them. I mean, physically, I've heard of some people saying, my mom hit me. As an adult? As an adult. Wow. Yeah. Or, you know, my dad screams at me or he has. And, and, you know, I think in those situations, you can try to talk to the person. You can try to set boundaries. And if you see that those things aren't helping, you have the option to not be in that relationship when it is physically unsafe, mm. when it is mentally unsafe for you. I think about sexual abuse or incest in families. It is unsafe for you to, you know, maybe have dinner with the person who sexually abused you. Maybe that is psychologically damaging. So each situation is different. And it is up to the person to decide, is this a situation that is continuing to cause me harm? Now, the process to getting there is trying to do something to repair those relationships. And that starts with having some conversations around the history of the relationship and what is happening presently. So if you are now an adult and your parent is, you know, perhaps still an alcoholic, how have you talked to them about what you expect from them now? Do you start with when you were a child or do you just start with the now? That's interesting. I, I think most of us want to start with the childhood, because mm. we want this person to really feel it. I think when people are still unwell, 
I don't know if they will give you that validation you're looking for from the childhood Mm -hmm. stuff because they're not in recovery yet. A lot of the work in that relationship is going to be present focused. What can we do presently? Hey, if you're drinking, I don't want you to come to this thing. Or when you're driving, um, I will call the whatever the, you know, I'll take your keys or, you know, whatever those things are. You can do that presently, but you certainly can have that conversation of childhood just to clear the space. You know, sometimes you just want to have that conversation to get things out. But the expectation that they'll actually say, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. I didn't even know that. You know, sometimes we we want that. We want people to free us because they're still in the mold of it. But when people are unwell presently, I'm not sure that they can hear you in the way that you need to be heard. And so when you get into this is the trauma you caused me, would it be more harmful for them to gaslight you? Would it be more harmful for them to deny it? Would it be more harmful for them to say that it didn't happen this way? This was actually, you know, what happened? Possibly. But if you feel like you can withstand that, then have the conversation. But just know that, you know, we don't know how the conversation will go. Like some people will say, like, you know, can I can I tell my parents this? You absolutely can. What is your expectation for this? Is the expectation that they'll stop? you know, this behavior immediately that they've been doing for 25 years is the expectation that they'll apologize. Is it, What is your expectation? Because have the conversation and then think about how you want to continue to show up in that relationship. Mm-hmm. That's the important piece. Whether you talk about the past or the present, it is about you and how you want to be in that relationship. It's not about changing them because They're creating the life they want to have, even if the life is unhealthy, even if the life is harmful to other people, they are making a choice and you are making a choice to be well. And a part of that is saying, you know, when you're calling me and you're talking about, you know, everybody in the family, I don't want to hear those sort of things about my cousins. I don't want to hear those sort of things about my siblings. So I will either remain silent or I will redirect the conversation. God, that's so beautiful. So as you start to write, though, your expectations are the expectations. Like, I assume that may be setting yourself up for disaster, because if they don't meet those expectations, now you may spiral even more. So do you when you're saying to someone, OK, write down the expectations. Mm-hmm. Is it just the exercise and then to say and now don't expect any of that? <laughs> that like, what, what does that expectation list look like and how do we use yeah. it as that first step into the conversation? Because there's that massive gap right between knowing it and then actually doing it. It's like sometimes you may be worse off than if you hadn't said anything at all. Oh, I love that. That's the part I've had. I've had people write letters, these long, thought out letters to their parents about everything that happened. And they're they're so sad. And they send the parent the letter and the parent doesn't respond or they send the parent the letter and the parent calls and they start. I can't believe you. you. So it's cathartic for us to get it out. Right. Mm-hmm. To And that's to anybody. You know, letter writing is a great way to get your feelings out. It's a journaling process. However, will this other person free you? I think our freedom is within. Mm. I know what happened. I know how it feels. 
Um, I can share this with this person if I choose to, but they cannot free me from my experience because that is for me to do. I heard you say in an interview that you have a boundary where it's the last person to get out of bed has to make it. And I love that so much. And I was like, the, it was the perfect example because my husband and I used to argue about bloody making the bed. And I grew up making the bed. That was the first thing you did. And he grew up in a world where his parents didn't care if he made the bed or not. So for him, it actually is against his value system because he thinks of it as a waste of time. So now I think of it as this is my sanctuary. This is my peace. This is my place of, you know, calm. And his boundary is valuable, but it's completely against mine. So A, take me through, did you find that with your uh, partner? Um, and then B, what would you do in situations like that where both boundaries are valid? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does sound like both boundaries are valid, but I would ask, especially in a marriage, um, do you want to be right or do you want to have a happy relationship? Mm -hmm. And there are some things where, yeah, maybe I don't like to make the bed, but if this is pleasing to my partner, can I do it as a show of I love you? Perhaps my love language is you making the bed. That is an act of service to me. Mm -hmm. um, so I need you to make the bed. So perhaps positioning it in a different way, because sometimes people don't like the word boundary, right? So positioning it in a different way, like I really feel cared for when you make the bed because this is my sanctuary and my place of peace. And so it's really important to me to get into the bed and it's all nice and every, all the all the 100 pillows are there and then we knock them on the floor. Um, it just feels like a peaceful experience. And it would be, really be helpful if you supported me in doing this thing, you know, a few times a week or daily, whatever sort of rotation you want to do. But sometimes it's not about we're both right. Whose side do we choose? But we we're, we love each other. And this is not a boundary that's like life changing. Right. This isn't a boundary that in the relationship, but it's certainly an irritant. Right. Yes. So do you do you want to get along or do you really want to stand on principle here? Yeah, God. So where is the line between you actually need to stay firm on this? And if someone doesn't reciprocate, then it's a sign of disrespect versus, you know what? Okay, you've set the boundary, but you've heard the other person out and now you start to negotiate your boundary. Where is that fine line? Yeah, so here's a, and I talk about, it's a whole chapter on, on this boundaries with yourself. Because we can only ask people for so much, right? And once they repeatedly show that they will not honor the boundary, that's where you have to say, this is my boundary with this person around this thing. So if it is making the bed, you know, maybe my boundary is, you know, I will make my side if you want to do that. Or, you know, I will make the bed. Or, you know, hey, I will make the bed, but I need assistance in this other area. Like there needs to be some other things that that you can do. You can't make a person respect your boundary. You can only make a request. 
So you can say, this is what I need, I would really like, but you can't change another person's behavior. And the best boundaries are the boundaries that we set with ourselves with other people, because it's very hard to get people to do what you want them to do in all instances. If you say, you know, hey, we're going to a party, don't get too drunk. You can't make that person not have seven drinks. You can say, hey, after after I see you have two drinks, I'm leaving. <laughs> you can't make them manage their alcohol intake. It is their alcohol intake. You can have boundaries around how much you will assist them when they get drunk, um, how much you're willing to watch it, how much you're willing to, like you can have a lot of boundaries in a situation that you can't control. God, I love that so much because that was part of one of the questions that I had is that a lot of people think that is certain things aren't optional, right? Like, well, I can't say that to them. Well, I can't not do this. Well, it's my mom. I can't not speak to her. Um, and the truth is, Everything is a choice. And I've heard you say that of you are choosing to engage in that relationship. Um, how do we start to take ownership over that to empower ourselves? Um, going to the chapter that you just said about boundaries with ourselves, how do we actually do that? So one of the biggest challenges is our programming. We are taught to almost not have boundaries, right? It's like, um, you know, I see it all the time with with kids. I have I have two. And when my daughter, my oldest daughter was really young, there was someone who said to her, hey, give me a hug. And and I haven't seen you in a while. And she was like two or three. And she was like, I don't want to. She's like, I don't want to. And the person kept trying. I was like, well, you know, she doesn't have to. And I kind of picked her up and moved her away. But I've seen that play out where people are like, no, give that person a hug. You know, do this thing that someone is requesting. Um, you don't know when you're full. Keep eating. Eat everything on your plate. So there are things that adults may do. You know, smile, be happy. You have to wear, you know, like all of these things that really take us away from the ability to be assertive. I think we do have boundaries, but they've gone um, unheard for so long that we start to think they're no longer important. And so it's not that, oh my gosh, I don't have any boundaries. We typically do. It's about how do, how do we express those things that are inside? We don't express them because oftentimes we've been programmed not to have any boundaries. It's not okay. It's me. You can't tell people that you don't want to come to their party. You know, you have to like everyone. And, yeah. you know, that you're going to be really mad if you don't call her on her birthday. Like all of these things that are done to make you feel like, you must say yes. You must do this thing, even if you don't want to. But there is a way to say no, or um, I won't be able to do that in a gentle way. I think it becomes aggressive when we are yelling, we are pushing people, we're using, you know, old situations and examples, and, you know, we're name calling, we're starting an argument. That's when it becomes aggressive. And that typically happens when we feel like we've just been taken advantage of for so long that we just get to this point where it's like, oh, why are you always asking me to do stuff? And, you know, it comes out as this yelling fest instead of saying no. And no should be used consistently, right? And when people keep asking you things, how do we have the conversation around 
I see that you're not understanding that it's a no for me. And so what I would like is for you to stop asking me about this thing. Mm. Yeah. What happens then when people still keep asking? Um, Does that come to sometimes you just have to cut people out of your life? Is that sometimes you just have to accept them how they are and they're going to continuously cross those boundaries and you have to deal with it and suck it up and be okay with it? Like what's the, because I think of different scenarios, right? It's like there are certain people, parents are harder, siblings are harder to push back on, um, love, you know, partnerships, husbands, boyfriends, you know, wives or whatever. Um, That seems a lot harder. And so I think a lot of people go to just then shutting down versus actually still working through it, still pushing through it. Um, to find a conclusion because if you're in a let's say a marriage or a relationship where they have the boundary and they just keep pushing back if you accept it I can't see a world where that relationship lasts or am I just being naive you know you presented a few options can you just suck it up can you you know re-establish the boundary do you just say that's how that person is do you cut them off Any of those can be true, and it's all based on your comfort level. Some people just won't cut people off that are unhealthy for them. And I don't want you to. I don't want you to do anything that is going to uh, be uncomfortable and difficult and maybe harm your life in doing. Even, you know, like sometimes people just don't feel like they can do that. Mm. And that's not anything that I would put. You have to, you, you don't have to. I mean, it might be healthy for you, but you don't have to do it until you're ready to do it. Because my readiness may be different from your readiness. I may choose not to be in a certain type of relationship with a person, but your tolerance of nonsense may be higher than mine. I can't determine. I can't determine that. I think the challenge is having a one set rule about cutting people off. I do think we have to do what is best for us and what feels the most comfortable. There are situations where it may not be to your advantage to to have a relationship with a parent. But if you can't envision not having a relationship with a parent, I don't know if it's healthy for me to tell you, you got to cut them off. This is your life and you get to choose. All of this is a choice. That's why I say all of those things could be true because they are all choices. And you have to figure out which choice you can live with. I will say that when I hear the word, how do I deal with blank? I often think about dealing with anything is a choice. So if you ever struggle with how do I deal with my mother? You don't have to. Dealing with anything is a choice. So you can choose not to, or you can you can choose to continue dealing with it. Um, and some things are just intolerable. And so cutting people off could be helpful. Also, placing boundaries on ourselves. Again, you know, there are some people who may chronically complain about the same thing, and you are emotionally drained by experiencing this. Guess what? You don't have to talk to that person every day. You don't have to talk to that person for two hours when you do talk to them. You can determine what works best for your energy. You can say, you know, I do like talking to this person. I do want this person in my life. You know, maybe I'll talk to them once a month for five minutes. Maybe that works. That could be your own boundary with this person. So you figure out 
what works for you instead of looking at what everybody, you know, what everybody says, like cut them off, do this. You may not be able to do that in some situations, but you might be able to put some boundaries around how you interact with the person. Girl, that's so strong. And like, I just want to put you on loop and repeat saying it's a choice. It's a choice. It's a choice. And putting like a beat to it because it's <laughs> like, it's so strong. And that's, I think it seems so simple. But when I say that was what held me back for so long, because I didn't think I had a choice. I was born taught a certain belief system about certain things. You don't cut your family out. You don't tell, you know, your dad that you um, can't have this conversation. It's like, as a good Greek girl, you sit down and you are quiet, you know? And so it's so empowering to tell people you have a choice, whether it's a partner or a friend or, you know, a boss, like you do have a choice and that choice is yours. You may not like the outcome. You may not like the backlash that comes from it, but to allow people to really believe it, that it's a choice, I think is, um, is so fundamental to everything that we're talking about here. Because if you don't think you have a choice, then you're not going to even start to make the change in the first place to have the re the healthy relationship that you were saying people can have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the piece about having a choice is so important because we often feel disempowered. Like these systems that we, we grew up in, these systems and cultures that are part of our lives absolutely dictate how we view things, whether that view is healthy or not. And we have to unlearn those things that are no longer useful to us. And we have to relearn concepts that are useful. And that's that's very challenging. And when you're in a cultural system, it, it is hard to be the, the one person who is saying, you know, I'm not going to do this thing because it doesn't feel good to me or you know, I would like to live my life in this way. It, it, it is really hard to do that because there's not going to be a lot of support within that group. And so what we have to begin to do is maybe find new people who are supportive of the lifestyle philosophy that we're trying to create. That's what I was going to ask you. How do people start creating that lifestyle? So things like following you on Instagram. Let's just say it's freaking amazing. Um, they need to follow you. But what other things can people do? So they're listening to this interview. They're like, oh my God, yes, I need to make this change. I really do need to let go of my, you know, maybe past beliefs or just the way I used to think. And I really want to cultivate this new way of thinking. What steps can they take in order to do that? So you said finding people. I think community is everything. And I freaking love that. And you know, that that phrase, um, the five people you surround yourself with is how you think and, you know, uh, turn up every day. So what are the other things that maybe people can do to start cultivating that? Mm -hmm. Getting to know themselves better. When we tap into who we really are, it really shows us why we accept things and how we have allowed things to go on for so long. So, so getting to know yourself more. Journaling is a wonderful way to start to know more about yourself. Learning your triggers and coming up with ways to respond to those things. So when you are triggered by this person who um, violates a boundary or by a situation that um, you may see on TV. What do you do? How do you ground yourself 
in these moments of maybe not having support from other people or being taken aback by something that you see or some experience you have? How do you ground yourself? Um, And I just want to go back to community. I think being vulnerable with people is a real way to build that community because so often on Instagram, in the comment section, I see so many people experiencing the same thing. And they say, you know, they may send me a message and say, I thought I was the only one. Yet there are thousands. There are thousands because we're not talking enough. We're not sharing our experiences enough. So we feel like I'm the only person with with this, you know, very random situation. And it's like, no, it's like all of us, all of us have the same situation and we just don't talk about it. So you can't even find community if you're not being honest about your story. If you're not being honest about what's going on, who you are, your, your your background, that's how you find your people. You draw your people to you by being vulnerable. And that authenticity, people are like, oh my gosh, that's that's my same thing. And it's like, yeah, look, we have the same thing. And that's how you build connection with people. And that's when you start to see, wow, okay, so you did it like that. Maybe I'll try it like that. And so you start to get some information about some of these things you're going through. And, you know, I there's so many spaces, you know, maybe online when the world was open, you know, there's groups and, and all sorts of things for us to be in community. And those are good things because we do need to be with people who experience things like us, who did not, who, you know, we need a variety of people in our lives. And so community is really, really important. One of the key elements to remember about the narcissistic relationship, it's why currently the world of mental health is not serving this group of people who's going through narcissistic abuse well. Mm. We make it all about responsibility and we put all the responsibility on the person going through narcissistic abuse and they're already blaming themselves.